This is the Mindful Experiment Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vic. Excited that you're here. This podcast is all about diving deep into the mind and understanding this experiment or this game we call life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day Sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is the Mindful Experiment Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vic. Excited that you're here. This podcast is all about diving deep into the mind and understanding this experiment or this game we call life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey guys, it's Dr. Vic, and you're listening to another episode here on The Mindful Experiment. As each week, Friday, we release an episode that shares an interview that we had with someone to share a concept, an idea to help you in life, consciousness, entrepreneurship, book writing, and so much more. This week, I had the pleasure of interviewing the Southern storyteller, Paul Attaway. And this interview was great. Paul and I talked about, he shares his three bullet points to, after 30 years of being in entrepreneurship, advice to give. Talks about the struggles and the the pluses and the minuses to self-publishing. And he talks, it gets into the aspects of his book, what is it? And so much, and how talks a little bit about his second book. But to talk a little bit about Paul, Paul was born and raised in the Atlanta, Georgia area. Paul and his wife, Lynn, met in college at Georgetown University and were married after Paul graduated from the University of Georgia School of Law. They moved to Phoenix, Arizona in 1988, where Paul embarked on a short legal career before starting a 30-year business career before retiring so he can write fiction. Paul and Lynn raised three children together in Phoenix and now split their time between Phoenix, Arizona and Charleston, South Carolina, and most recently, McCall, Idaho. Blood in the law country is 
in the Low Country, sorry, is Paul Attaway's de de debut novel. Writing this book, along with the move to Charleston, is a coming home of sorts and a return to the South. Paul is busy writing his second book, immersing himself in Charleston and defining what it means to be a writer. I highly recommend this. There's some good nuggets that Paul shares, and I know you'll gain a lot of good insights from this. So with no further ado, here is the Southern storyteller, Paul Attaway. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. And thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm uh, excited to have you on. I know we're going to have a really nice conversation here, and I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to know uh, more about you, hearing it from you instead of reading about you, and also to the listeners of what they're going to gain from uh, what we will be discussing today. So um, as always, my listeners kind of know uh, the kind of gist right off the bat. I kind of keep it very routine. Um, how did you get into what you're doing today? Like, what inspired you or what happened in life that kind of, was it just a one-way directed kind of path or was it something that, uh, I call it the pinball effect where you just bounce around and then you're like, oh, this is one of, this is my purpose. Here's what I'm here to do. Yeah, no, that's a good question. And I, I wish I had a uh, succinct answer that, that would um, evidence that I had planned all this from the beginning, but um, that's simply not the case. And um, um, I have uh, my views on planning or such that I, I, I picked this up from somebody else. Make your plans in pencil. It will be easier to change when circumstances change. So, uh, but, you know, I had a 30 plus year career as an entrepreneur. I was a lawyer for a whopping two years. That didn't take, but I enjoyed the experience. Then I was in the small business world and I started several businesses in a variety of different industries. And that's an all-consuming process, um, and it can be kind of a, a lonely process unless your company grows to be hundreds of employees, in which case you're no longer a small businessman. And um, my wife and I, we have three uh, kids. They're all adults now. And we got to a point where the youngest was moving out of the house, becoming empty nesters. I was too young to retire, but I was too tired, frankly to start any new businesses, emotionally tired, physically tired, out of ideas, um, you know, looking for something to do. So I did what a lot of people do in my situation. I consulted or I became an executive for hire. I did that, met some great people, but still I found that it, it, it just, I couldn't see myself doing that uh, for the next, you know, 20 plus years. So I was at Finished a consulting gig, and you know I was it was um, I was reading a book, or I'd finish a book, and I'd go, "Wow, what a great book!" Or I'd finish a book, and I'd go, eh, "It wasn't so good. I could do that." And so I think my wife got kind of tired of hearing me say that. So she said, "You need to either do this or just you know move on." I'm tired of hearing you talk about it. So I kind of said, "Okay, I'm going to do it," and um, so I I. I, I I set out to write a book and, um, and then I get in and I joke, I now have a lot of respect for people who wrote the books that I uh, arrogantly termed as not very good. Um, it's hard. It was very hard. Um, took about three years. I continued to consult a bit, but after I finished it, it, it brought me such a sense of satisfaction that it made the next decision uh, very easy. And that was, um, I'm an author and I'm now committed to doing this and I'm working on book two and I'm now doing everything one must do 
to be a self-published author. So that's sort of a long answer to how I got here. I love that. Yeah, writing books been it's a it's a fun journey. Uh, I, I must say, and your book's called The Blood in the Low Country. You mind just telling me a little Correct. bit about it? I love the name. I know you're a Southern storyteller, so you mind diving in just a little yeah. bit? Yeah. No, not a problem. Thanks. Uh, yeah, born and raised in Atlanta. Uh, circumstances uh, sent me out to Phoenix, Arizona after law school, and my wife and I spent thirty plus years there. Well, one of our daughters attended College of Charleston, and so we fell in love with the city visiting her, and we were you know, getting to the point where we envisioned being empty nesters, so we, we bought a, a small place in Charleston, and we just fell in love with the city. So when it came time to write a book, you know, some of the advice I, I, you know, that, that, that anyone will pick up is, you know, write what you know. Well, I knew what it was like to grow up in the South. And I, I and, and everything that goes with that, and I just loved Charleston, and, and it's the it's the type of city. Frankly, it's almost a character in the book. It's got such charm and history and personality that setting the story here um, was an easy decision. The story itself is pure fiction. It is a murder mystery family saga set in Charleston back in the 1970s, and um, you know just dreamed it up. Um, and it's gotten really good reviews. But the title, Blood in the Low Country, uh, low country is a term that's used to describe the coast of Carolina, uh, South Carolina, and a little bit into Georgia. And it, it truly is low country. I mean, you are, you are um, a lot of marshland. And low country can connotate a certain type of food, uh, a certain culture, etc. So low country describes where the book takes place. Blood is intended to have two meanings. One is murder. There is a murder in the book. It's not glorified. It's not glamorized. It happens off scene, but it's a big part of the book. And then blood as in family, blood in the low country, because we've got some family dynamics and some stuff from the past that reaches up and, and shakes up the lives of people today. So that's how we came up with blood in the low country. That's cool. I didn't know that. Uh, see, now I learned something new here. And talk a little bit about your struggle, like the challenges that you faced. You said you had a lot more respect for somebody who wrote a book compared to before. What was, besides just reading the book and being like, nah, I could do that. That's a piece of cake. Right. Um, what are some of the big things you learned as you wrote your own book? For people who are looking to maybe write a book or uh, have thought about it, or some who may be like, naive like I wasn't at one point like ah piece of cake I can get I can I can stream some up one two three I do it all I do right very, very similar stuff like this already be very easy to do uh if you don't mind sharing uh not a problem um so I wrote uh, fiction uh non is different um, um I like to think I'm not an expert in anything so there's no way I could have written a non-fiction book so I, I write fiction and I I think quite simply the, the, um, the hardest part about it was you put yourself out there. It is a scary process. You're going to write a book. You're going to put your name on it. And you're going to tell family and friends and total strangers, this is my book. Um, and some of my long-term friends said, Paul, I was, I was afraid to read your book because what if it was just awful? What would I say to you? I mean, <laughs> and so there's a bit of a fear that you're, that you're going to just fall flat on your face. So overcoming that um, you know, is an ongoing challenge. In terms of the actual mechanics of writing a story, 
uh, for me, I had to go back and relearn so much. I mean, I was a finance major in college. I had to go back and, and read books and blogs on perspective, point of view, storytelling, the elements of a story. And what I decided to focus on was storytelling, story engineering, how to, how, how to write a page turner. So from a technical perspective, that's the way I approached it. Um, you know, I like to think in the words of Harry Callahan, and uh, um, man's got to know his limitations, you know. So I, I, I know I'm never going to be a Hemingway, so I have to focus on what I can do. And it, it may not be the most beautifully crafted sentences and paragraphs, but I can learn to engineer and build a page turner. So that was the approach that I took. I like that. I love how you brought that up because it's like, you know, I've written two books. They're in the, they're in the, the nonfiction world, but it's, um, I'm not a writer. I, I, I'm not great. Grammatically, yeah, that's not my strength whatsoever. I'm more of a science, math, you know, the different health element kind of concept mindset. So when it comes to those things, I can do that all day long, but putting it into flow and being able to, uh, right. Gra- grammar more than anything. I'm like, yeah, you're going to see a lot right. of mistakes, but thankfully there's an editor for that, um, <laughs> which makes it a lot yep. easier, right? Because yep. one of the things I'm looking to do next in one of my journeys is um, write a book that is fiction, but tail the story to a meaning to where it can give an aspect to some aspect of life and be a spiritual truth or just something to help an individual. And that is going to be a task for me, which I'm again excited to do because you know you see people write these books like as yourself, and it's like you can read them and you think, ah, oh, yeah, okay, I can do that. But then come sit down to how you said how you went backwards, right, and you started to study storytelling, the element of it all, and and how to put that all together. That's something that uh, I think is key. And then you found your strength in there, correct? That's correct. Yeah, and I I got some really good advice. Um, my wife and I we were. Um, commuting, so to speak, between Phoenix and Charleston. Most of our time in Phoenix, that's where we lived, but we were putting down some roots in Charleston. We were introduced to a couple and they were a bit older. They had fully retired and the husband and the couple had had a full career as a film editor out in California. So he knew a thing or two about storytelling. And so I sit down, we had dinner and he's like, so Paul, what are you doing? And I had just literally that week sat down to start trying to write the book. Literally, blank sheet of paper in front of me and didn't even know where to start. I mean, how do you start writing a book? I mean, I get it page one, but literally where do you go from there? And, and I I explained to him my struggles and he said, stop trying to write a book, just write, just sit down and write and stitch it together later. You may have a scene here. You may have a scene here and you just have to trust the process. If you try to write a book from start to finish, you'll never get there. And I went back, I was working out of a library at the time. And I went back the next morning, I sat down, turn on the laptop, log in. And I just, I, I don't do anything else. I just immediately start typing. And he was dead on right. And within about four or five days, I had about 10,000 words. I kept a lot of them, but it, it just sort of uncorked this, this dam, so to speak. It's kind of like, how do you get started? You, you just jump in and then it, you stitch the story together. And that, that was very good advice for me. I think Jacob Canfield from uh, the chicken, uh, what is it? Those, uh, well, the soup books, I call them. Yeah. 
um, he'll always talk about like he, every morning he gets up and he writes and he just writes and writes and writes. And then uh, people go, where do you write all these books from? He goes, it's from my morning writings. I just get up and I just write. And then he'll eventually he'll, t- he'll put piece things together. And the next, thing you know, he has kind of like a book already there. And then he just cleans it up to make sure it kind of Correct. Yeah. makes it flow. Yeah. That's some good sound. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I did. Okay, yeah. right, when I get stuck today, I go back and do the same. Yeah. When I get stuck today, uh, I, I, I will have to remember that, you know, just, just, you know, free your mind and just sit down and start writing, see where it takes you. It's so true. I mean, that helped me with my own writing stuff where when I was trying to conceive, like conceptually, like try to walk the reader through where I wanted to get them to. And then I was like, okay, none of that. I'm just going to think of a concept and write. And then all of a sudden within a short period of time, I had the book and I'm like, wow. Okay. Okay, is this good? I don't know if it's good. Is it good? And you start questioning, right? And I'm like, ah, maybe we'll see. And then you start sharing it off to friends and you're like, hey, can you please give me a review? Let me know what you think of this before I put this all together. And they're like, wow, this is a really good book. I'm like, no, you're saying that because I'm your friend. I need, I need, I need, I need truth. I need, I can't have you be a nice person right now. (laughs) Well, your editor Um, comes in. Yeah, exactly. And the editor comes in and it starts cleaning up. Wow, why did you, this doesn't flow with this? I'm like, whoa, but that's an important part. You know, that's the fun journey of it all. What are some of the biggest things that you see besides the writer stuff that you're sharing here? What else is something that for uh, self-publishers who are looking to do that, um, would you say is something that you learned that um, was a big getting over the hump kind of a thing to get writing to be a little more easier, easier for you? Yeah. Um, well, okay. So the, um, the writing process, um, I don't know. I, I think that, um, at least for me, I didn't know where the story was going. I didn't conceive of a story start to finish, know who was going to live, who was going to die. I, I didn't know all of that. I had, a, I had a couple of themes. You mentioned themes. And so I focused on characters and themes. And I had a, um, a, a you know, one of the themes in my book was we have a we have a the protagonist is a man named Monty, married, uh, and he has two children uh, with his wife. One is theirs, and then one is a son that that she brought in from her previous marriage. So you have this family unit, and uh, the father is torn because his his mother, I'm sorry, his wife put such extraordinary pressure on the two boys to succeed in order to make her look good because she's ashamed of her past. She comes from utter poverty. And so we have a husband who was torn between honoring his wife and, and honoring his children. And he, he feels like he can't do both. And he's going along trying to, trying to do both. And she makes it impossible to do both. But things are going along on the surface, all looks good. And then there is this murder that rips the lives of two families completely upside down. And one, we have a hunt for the real killer. And and so we see this, we see this character change, uh, Monty, and he goes from being a very controlling type person, thinks he can plan everything to where all of a sudden he has to really let go and trust. And for him, he puts his trust in the Lord, and that's what helps him get through these difficult times. So for me, it was, okay, I need something exciting to happen. This is kind of boring what I've written. So, you know, you have to come up with these plot twists and turns, and then you go, oh, I'll like that. And so I've got a lot of different plot twists and turns. But when I sat down to write the book, I had no idea where the story was going. I had a rough idea. And then I and I would always come back to, okay, well, if this happened, how would the characters react? Because if the characters don't react 
in character to the action, the story does, isn't believable. You know, you can't have a, a 75-year-old person, you know, uh, you know, chasing down a terrorist. That just doesn't work. Okay, I use that to exaggerate. So I, I would come back to the characters and I would, you know, throw things at them. And so those twists and turns were the aha moment. So I go, wow, okay, that could be interesting. And then I would write. So my writing, I could see maybe three, four, five scenes ahead. And I'd write that. I'd get through this. And then I'd go, okay, now what? And it, it, you know, it could be three or four days before I got, you know, quote, more inspiration um, to answer the now what happens question. So, and, and I'm working on book two and I'm experiencing the exact same thing. Now, maybe James Patterson and these folks that turn out, you know, three or four books a year, they've got it down to where they can see the story from beginning to end. I, I can't. Um, I have to trust that the story is going to you know, take shape as I write it. I love that. And, and how much is that like? So is it just more of like, because you're saying like story to end, you don't see that. So is it more of like a, like an intuition? It's just a feeling that you're like, I just one day you're just like, huh, I feel like we just, I'm going to just write this and just see how this goes. And then you look back and go, oh, wow, look, that piece is really well with that story. Or that has a nice segue into this kind of a scene or something along those lines. Yeah. No, oftentimes I'd get to a point and, and I might um, have two or three different ideas as to what could happen next. And I might just sort of sketch them out and, and what if, what if, and if this happens and this happens. And then sometimes you kind of run into a, just into a corner. It just it doesn't seem to work. Um, and then what I find is it could be later in the day. I mean, I try to do my writing in the morning. It could have been that afternoon, I'm either out running an errand or maybe I'm, I've gone for a run, try to get some exercise or I go to the driving range. And then all of a sudden I'm doing something completely different. And then I go, and th- then an idea will pop into my head and I go, okay, hold on. That could work. So I, I find that at times I'm trying to force something to happen. It doesn't happen. Sometimes it does, but if it doesn't, um, I learn to stop beating myself up because I've had enough experiences where I was able to write myself out of that corner um, when I got inspiration, you know, later that day, doing something else completely different. You know, I, I could literally be waiting at a, at a red light in traffic and I go, wait a minute, hold on, that could work. And so then I, um, I don't rely on my memory anymore. I pull over and I email myself what I was thinking. Otherwise, I'll forget. I don't know how that goes, definitely. How much the lessons that you've been learning through writing a book and all that, how much is that crossover and very similar to your years as an entrepreneur? Um, It's paying off dividends now. When I first sat down to write the book, I was focused on writing a book. And so um, now in my career in the small business world and as a lawyer, though I was only a lawyer for two years, I wrote all the time. So the, the, the discipline of writing was, wasn't new. I've always written and I've always focused on the economy of words, if, you know, try to get things to one page. In the business world, you, know, you, you don't want to give somebody a 10-page memo, you know, one page, two pages at most. So I'd always been focused on that. So that wasn't new. Then I found that I'd had some business experiences, um, you know, with some unsavory people here and there. And uh, so I, I threw in a little 
you know, subplot on some shady real estate dealings, you know, that I'd witnessed in my career. So I could draw on that, but I, 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 I naively went into the business of writing a book thinking that had all that, not much to do with the business side of it. Well, once I finished the book and I had my cover design and then everything, and I, I'm now ready to put it up on Amazon and try to figure out how to sell it. Well, good grief. Um, the business side of trying to sell a book, especially if you're a self-published author, has been an eye-opening experience. And so now I have two jobs, writing my second book and continuing to sell my first book. And you know, I, I think if I had done a business plan before I sat down, I would have spent more time on the front end trying to figure out how I'm going to sell this book before I wrote it. But then again, if I had gone through all that, I might have decided it wasn't a very good idea, and so don't write the book. I'm glad I wrote it. It was fun. I've learned a lot. I enjoy it. Um, I'm having success selling the book, but I've learned a great deal about self-publishing, the, the, um, the, the benefits of it, the opportunities that are available, but also the limitations of being a self-published author. Um, and I think it's important to recognize um, um, I didn't fully appreciate the limitations or the, or the hurdles that are put in front of a self-published author until I'd actually gone through it. Um, it is a challenge. Would you, for your second book, would you go through self-publishing again, or would you work with like a publisher or something like that? Well, um, I'm hoping to land an agent. So, you know, there's a half a dozen of the big publishers. They will not accept a manuscript directly from an author. You have to get an agent and the agent then helps you get the publisher. And I tried to get an agent. I went through the process. I, I wrote what's called a query letter. I contacted two, two dozen or so agents and had no success. And that's a whole different ball game, trying to get an agent. And then if you have a publisher, you have someone that will help you with the cover design and the title, and they'll get you uploaded on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and everything else. But more importantly, they'll get you distribution into bookstores. They have sales reps who go into the bookstores, independent bookstores, and say, you know, these are our authors. This is what we have this, this season. Um, so when I had no success with the agent, the second route was to go directly to smaller publishers, and there, of which there are a great number of smaller publishers or niche publishers. And they advertise that they will accept a manuscript directly from an author, that you don't need an agent. They still would like if an agent brought it to them because that's at least one person who's vetted you and vetted the book. So I tried that. Um, and that's a whole different uh, approach. I, and um, I decided to self-publish because the smaller publishers um, – they take a long time. You still have to contribute some money to the process. And then I, I'm impatient. Um, I'm not proud of it, but I'm a very impatient person. They're like, well, Paul, we, it's going to take us a year and a half to get your book out. I'm like, are you kidding me? I can get this thing out in three months. So I ended up self-publishing. With book two, I'm going to go back out and try to get an agent. And I'm hoping that based upon the sales of book one, and they'll, they'll see what I've been able to do, that uh, I'll have a better chance of getting an agent because self-publishing, you will get your book, 
You'll get it bound. You'll get the cover designed. You'll get your ISBN numbers. You'll get everything that you need to be on Amazon. And then you can get into, um, there's another uh, big publisher called Ingram Spark, and they'll help you get into bookstores and Barnes and Noble. But it's one of those things you go, great, I'm on Amazon. Within a week, everyone's going to know, right? Well, of course not. I mean, there's like, you know, 4 million books published a year. So um, the Achilles heel of self-publishing is uh, distribution into bookstores. It's virtually non-existent. I go door to door here in the southeastern part of the country. And then if you're on Amazon, you um, if you don't know your way around social media, you will learn your way. Uh, you know, a year and a half ago, I was not on Facebook. I was not on Instagram. And now I'm on it two to three times a day, posting, blogging, um, advertising, Facebook ads, Google ads. I have an advertising team that helps me. So my a big part of my job is advertising and uh, trying to spend that dollar wisely and, and see if it's generating book sales. So I've, I have um, embraced the business side, but I have learned it um, along the way. It has been trial by fire. I totally know how that feels uh, in many different ways. And it's been, uh, it's the one thing I kind of like too, because I'm kind of like you, I mean, I'm patient in a degree. I love like a systematic plan and creating it and then trying to, hopefully it goes that route. Most like you said earlier, right? right. Write your plans with a pencil because you're going to need to erase it. Right. It's easier to erase, which is so true. Um but then there's that like, cause like for me, my, my, you know, when I, when I, my second book, I was like thinking about what I wanted to write. And all of a sudden it just struck me one day and I was like, okay, that's what I'm writing. And I just went to writing and then I was done very quickly. And I was like, okay, let's get that out there in two months. Then, right. And, exactly. And some, right. I want it out. I want it done <laughs> and I want to move forward. And some people are like, well, you know, there's the business. Side. I'm like, yeah, I totally know it. I could, I could save six months, market it, do this, do this little sneak, but I can do all that. And that's fine. I go for me, it was more just here's another book I've written, put it on my shelf of writing books. Cause I have a big goal of what I want to, how many books I want to write and get out there. But it's one of the things where like some, I go, I have, I've followed some people where they've written four five, six books that no one even heard of before their one book finally struck. And then all of a sudden, all those old books they wrote got extremely popular. Right. And I said, Correct. that's probably going to be my route. I said, I'll write many books. And then eventually once one gets picked up or some, whatever may happen, I said, then they'll look back and go, Oh, wow. Look at all the other ones he's written. Holy cow. And then that will take you to its course it goes. But everyone has their own purpose and vision, how they want to do things too. But I think that's the one thing I love about self-publishing, how quick you can just make something, turn it yep. around and get in. And nowadays it's so much easier. Like you mentioned, Ingram Spark. I love what they do. They even help you get yep. into libra libraries and yep. libraries and so forth. And um, which works wonders um, in so many ways, helped me out massively. Uh, oh, it does. I, I go to I go to an independent bookstore here and they all want to help me. I go in, I got a local author, a book is set in the region. They want to help you. And they go, how can I order it? And I go, well, it's on Ingram Spark. And they go, oh, great. And so they can order it. So I get sales into bookstores. The problem is I'm the only salesman. Uh, and if you're with a publisher, they have a sales team that will then go out. And when I say, so when I say that's the Achilles heel, of self-publishing. The, the Achilles heel is you are the sales team, whether you're doing it on through Amazon or where you're doing it, you know, door to door to independent bookstores. And that, that is a challenge. That is. And if it depends, you know, how big you want to scale and where you want to go, distribution yeah. is everything. So it's one of those things where, you know, depending how you do that. No, I, I love that. 
Um, kind of same topic, just shifting gears a little bit because it's talking about, we were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, uh, before we got on about working alone through the aspect of being an entrepreneur and, and, and things along that nature. I'm thinking that's what the context we're yep. chatting a little bit on. Um, can you explain a little bit of that journey for yourself, what that means? And the, the journey sometimes of, you know, we being an entrepreneur, it is like, I, I mean, I, I own a couple of businesses. I know exactly that feeling of where, you know, you, you do feel alone, but I'm just kind of, I want to curious to see um, if you could break that down a little bit and then we'll, yeah. we'll dive in deeper. Um, you know, I was, I started my first business in my uh, late twenties and um, it was incredible how smart I was back then because you couldn't have told me anything. I'm much more stupid today because I now I now am smart enough to know I need a lot of help. Um, so back then, um, I didn't want advice from anybody. Um, you become so immersed in what you're doing. You become the expert. You, I mean, at least for me, um, um, I had no one to talk to. But I didn't think I needed anyone to talk to. Um, and, and so you end up in an echo chamber. And so you're basically, it's all in your own head. Um, when things are going well, that's great. You know, sales are going well. The product development is working. And so, you know, um, you think you got it all figured out. <clears throat> then you hit some rough patches. And you, again, you find you don't have anybody to talk to. Uh, I'll, you know, and then you're, you're, you know, I was very fortunate. I've had a very supportive wife, um, but I didn't give her the benefit of the doubt in the early years of marriage. And so she would ask about things. I didn't want to talk about it because I would think, well, what does she know about what I'm doing? You know, she's over here with the kids all day. I didn't realize how unbelievably um, the, the intuition that she has and sometimes the ability to see through, you know, excuse my friends, a lot of the bullshit that was going on because I'm just so immersed in it. So one of the things I have found, and I, I found it, um, it's a coach. And he was a first, he was a, a marriage counselor because you went through a rough, a rough patch. Um, I, I joked that I was diagnosed as an asshole and this guy confirmed it. Um, and, uh, but we, we, we got through that. And now this gentleman is my coach. And basically what he does is he listens to me. And I go and he'll go, Paul, what's going on in your world? And I'll talk. He'll put me on hold. He'll summarize it back. And I hear what I'm saying. And odds are, if I don't hear it out loud, I just go round and round and round and round and round. And the, and the, the challenges, whatever it might be, never really get fleshed out. Or I don't see all the sides and all the angles of it. So when I'm talking to somebody, he's not telling me what to do. He's just hearing me. And then I'll hear it back. And I go, well, well, actually, no, that doesn't work. But the whole, through the process of it, I find that my stress level goes down. I have a better understanding of the particular problem. And I have a clear vision of what I need to do. And so... Um, when you're in a small business and you're the one that started it and you know how to do every job and you're writing people's paychecks, sometimes there's no one there to go to uh, or they're afraid to tell you the truth. Um, and so to have someone outside of that that can just listen to you and not, as I say, shit all over you, you should do this, you should do that, has been life-saving for me. 
So that is how I have dealt with sometimes the lonely nature of, um, you know, being a small business guy. Now, I appreciate you sharing that. It's, it's so true. And isn't it amazing? I, I know, like, for me, uh, my wife, we, we work in my chiropractic business together, but it's, it's, but it, people think, oh, you guys work together. And I'm like, no, we work in the same office, but I'm the doctor. So I'm with patients all day and she's in the front and taking care of operations and movement and how things go. So I'm like, we don't really see each other. So, um, so like at the end of the day, we have something to talk about, but it's, it's amazing. The insight, some of the deepest wisdom and truths I've ever gotten for whatever I'm going through or need to work through is through my wife. And it's been fascinating because I kind of had similar mindset, like oh, I have to have a coach, I have to have someone in the profession, or I have to have someone here who can help me. And I do have those people too. But mm-hmm. it was interesting, because when I started to open up more to her and just share things, all of a sudden, it was like, once in a while, she'll come with this deep, profound insight. And I'm going, where do you, who, who, who are you? Like, where'd this come from? And she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, she goes, I do have good wisdom at times. Like, I know you do. You're very insightful at times. It's just amazing where, because when she'll say it, you'll feel, I'll feel it like, oh, yeah, that's, that's. Yeah. That's that's the stuff right there. Yeah, no, that's great. That uh, you're you're lucky. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> I count as my I, blessings. Oh no, totally. Yes, as as am I. And you know, but it's it's one of the things where too like, as and I think this is more. I don't like to get into genders as much, but like for males, we we sometimes we need that outlet. We need to have someone listen to us or be able to share in a safe space because that's why a lot of men's groups are getting very popular now, right. at least I'm seeing, where they'll talk about it. Like we need to know that we're not alone either, right? And the essence of not being alone also means not think we think our problems are just our problems and nobody else experiences them. And knowing that we do have, there's others that go through it too. Right. So what you're identifying is the fact that sometimes if you don't share your problems with others in a safe place, you can fall into believing a lie. And the lie is that you're the only one dealing with this. And then when you get out and you find a friend or two that you can speak with and you find out that they're dealing with something very similar, um, it makes you feel not quite so weird, you know, <laughs> or, or, or like, well, maybe I shouldn't feel so sorry for myself because these guys are all dealing with it too. And frankly, some of them are dealing with it better than me. Maybe I ought to talk to these folks. Yeah, no, um, I think maybe I, 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 I'm a hundred percent believer that, uh, the genders are different. Uh, we, we, uh, uh, and those differences are wonderful, confounding at times, um, but at the same time, uh, you you um, you make that that's what makes a good team. But I think generationally as well, you know, my father and his father, you didn't talk about your problems. You didn't, you know, no, 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 that that wasn't manly. You 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 were stoic. You 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 know you you absorbed it all. And um, I'm not for you know crying at the drop of a hat kind of guy either. So I think there's a balance between being too touchy-feely and being too stoic. But um, I think it's, um, it's very healthy if you can find somebody who will just, sip, just simply listen to you and not turn around and tell you what you should do. I agree 100% with you. And we all need those. So for all the listeners, if you definitely worth having if it's a coach, consultant, therapist, whoever it is. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so you have 30 years of entrepreneurship experience and so forth. What advice would you give to somebody who's looking to become an entrepreneur? Like if you can like three bullet points or one or two, what's the top three things that you would be like, hey, here's the things I've learned in the last 30 years that could help you out in your journey. What would that be? All right. Um, uh, 
One, don't be afraid. Uh, I think fear restricts us so many times. We're afraid to take the chance. We're afraid to jump in. Don't be afraid. Um, and things may not work out the way you envisioned them. They may start here and you see it going here and you end up over here. Let it happen. Don't be afraid of where things may go. Thing two, um, um, watch your expenses and your debt. Now, this is old school thinking. Amazon wouldn't be where they were if they had watched their expenses and their debt. It took them 20 plus years to make a profit. So I, I get it that the world today is a little bit different in the way companies are capitalized. And, and I, I, I understand all that. But unless, you know, unless you've got that uh, money behind you, I mean, you know, even if it's just back of an envelope, you got to know on a regular basis how much you're spending. And where your break even is, and be very mindful because debt never sleeps. Debt, your salesmen sleep. Debt never sleeps. Um, and then the third one is is be prepared to pivot. Uh, you may think you understand the market, and then you get in and you find out that what you thought your customer wanted, they really don't want, but they want something else, and you're able to provide it. Don't be so locked into thinking that you're right that you cannot see what someone is willing to tell you. So you got to be ready to pivot. I like the pivot one. That one was for me just because I was so fixated on how things should go or how it should be, or here's the path of what I'm going to create and just make it happen. Uh, and then, you know, you get there and it's like, uh, maybe it's not working. And you want to go this way. And it's like, no, 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 this is, this is, this is what I'm doing. Right. That's it. And right. then until you learn to pivot and I've learned over time, uh, we have a chiropractic principle that when we, when we chiropractic helps the individual be more adaptable and fluid to life. It helps you adapt easier to situations and not overwhelm the nervous system. And I was like, Oh man, I can't believe it. Me, a chiropractor is thinking about that now going, hold on. You got to adapt to your situations better. It's a simple principle that yeah. we teach and share. I'm tearing the patients all the time. This, and I'm like, Oh yeah, maybe I need to look <laughs> at things a little differently. Maybe it, 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 maybe it's going to be a different road for me. Right. Cause again, I had cultural programming and there's, there's also programming in how success looks like as a chiropractor. So all those things are fixed into it. And then once you break away from that, so that's why when you said yeah. prepare to pivot, I'm like, yeah, that's a good one. No, I, we had uh, one of my businesses, we had some technology that would allow us to protect structures from earthquakes. And so we would protect network server racks and flooring systems. And so the ground could shake and, and whatever it is you wanted to protect would stay relatively still. Okay. So we're, we're back in Phoenix, Arizona, late 90s. And we're calling on a company that manufactures very large pieces of equipment that are used to um, polish silicon wafers, big eight, six, eight, 12 inch wafers at the time that are then cut up to make chips. And so we're trying to pitch them on the need to protect their equipment from earthquakes because a lot of their equipment was sold into Asia, the ring of fire. So we have this meeting with this product engineer and we get there and he says, I have to cancel the meeting. And I'm like, um, you know, we've had this meeting on the calendar for a while now, what's going on? He says, well, my equipment, it shakes and vibrates so much that unless I can fix this, I'm out of job. And he goes, frankly, between you and me, none of my customers ever complain about earthquakes. Well, my chief engineer, he was my certified smart guy. He goes, tell me about your problem. And so the guy described it and he goes, well, I can fix that. And based upon that one meeting, we developed a prototype 
And apparently this problem he had was problem that was sort of industry-wide in this type of equipment. We did some prototyping. Next thing you know, within a year, we had a whole separate different business division that addressed micro vibration issues in the semiconductor industry, life sciences, microelectronics. And it all started, we're here for one reason. My engineer had the foresight to go, tell me about your problem. And, and we pivoted and it was, it, was, um, it was big. So you just never know. You never do. That's a pretty cool story. Yeah. I like that. So one last, one couple of questions I have. One of them is, uh, I love asking authors this, so I'm just curious. Is there a purpose or who, who was the book that you wrote, this book you wrote? Was there someone you were writing it for? Or was it just something you just wanted to write? What was the, that, that one thing? Well, there could be many, but what yeah. is that one thing that if you couldn't get it down to that, um, why you wrote the book? Um, I wrote the book for me. Um, I did definitely write it. Um, and, and I say that because it, it did kind of start off as a project. Can I do this? Can I pull this off? And, you know, in my entrepreneurial career, um, uh, I could have been accused at times of chasing after the shiny object, you know, always boom, you know, new idea, new idea. And I'd put some time and money into it and I'd see what come from it. And maybe I'd, you know, fund a little bit and bring out other people, but I would be, I'd be easily distracted. And, um, <clears throat> And, and so um, I, I'd get a company started, and I'd, 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 man, I'd put the people in there to run it, and then I'd go start another one. Sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't. My wife kept saying, if you're going to write this book, finish it. If you're going to do this, finish it. And so I wrote the book. It was like, yep. And uh, I got to a point where I'd, I started it, took a consulting gig, and my book languished. I finished the consulting project and I was looking for the next thing to do. And I said, unless I go all in, this is never going to happen. And so I said no to a few opportunities. Don't know if it would have happened, but I, I said no to the interviews or whatever. I said, I went all in. Six months later, the book was finished. And when I got that copy from the printer, my advanced reader copy, and I saw that, I said, this is awesome. So I wrote it for me and it was unbelievably satisfying. I did not write it to get rich because that would have been a stupid thing to do because there's just so few guarantees. So I wrote it for me. Um, book two though, um, I'm now consider myself an author. This is a business enterprise. I'm fortunate. I don't have to feed myself based upon book royalties. So I, I, I get to, but I am putting some money behind it. I'm budgeting this. I'm making sure revenues exceed expenses and such. Uh, and I'm writing this book a little bit more with an audience in mind. So I'm, I'm, you know, it's a different, ex, uh, it's a different um, experience slightly. But uh, the first book was for me. Love that. Um, yeah, I know how that feels. That's how my first one was from, it was, it was, well, it was, it was a book that I wish I had for me when I was younger. And so then I said, I, if, if for it's, it, so it's for me, but then it's also the gift to help others in that yeah. process. Um, real quick, before we wrap up, how can people connect, find about your first book, how to connect and keep, you know, keep up with where your second book yeah. can be released and all that good stuff. Well, I was fortunate there's no other paulattaway.coms out there. So I was able to get that domain. So my, my website is paulattaway, that's A-T-T-A-W-A-Y 
paulattaway.com, paulattaway.com. And there you can find my other social media icons. You know, my, my Instagram is author Paul Attaway. But at that website, then, you know, I, I do, um, I'm doing more blogging, written a short story. I've got another one I'm coming out with. Um, you know, if, if you're part of a book club and you want me to appear at your book club, I can do that by Zoom. You can sign up for it there. Um, books available at, at uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. And if you're in Charleston, there's several bookstores that carry it too. But uh, just go to paulattaway.com. Awesome. Listeners, I'll, I'll be right. in the show notes for you. Paul, it was a pleasure. I appreciate you taking sharing space to share with everyone here at the Mindful Experiment, um, your story, the book, and sharing some wonderful nuggets and wisdom that you shared with us today. I, I greatly appreciate it. Appreciate all you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate it too. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you found this episode to be inspirational, pay it forward by sharing with someone that you know can benefit from this. If this is your first time tuning in, please follow us, connect with us so you don't miss another amazing episode. And until next time, keep rocking and rolling. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you found this episode to be inspirational, pay it forward by sharing with someone that you know can benefit from this. If this is your first time tuning in, please follow us, connect with us so you don't miss another amazing episode. And until next time, keep rocking and rolling.